around disclaimers. But here is my disclaimer for the sermon ahead. The first is that there's way more to say here than I am able to do. I already fear I'm going to have a hard time squeezing this into a normal sermon length, so I'm going to work hard to do that. Uh, but the questions about revival and, and the history and the thought and how that has shaped the evangelical mind on these issues are, are massive things. Uh, and so I'm going to have to make statements that I, I can't necessarily prove in the moment, but could prove later if we have more time. Really, we should probably take a, a Sunday school quarter or two and consider revival and revivalism in the history of the church, and in particular, the American church since the Second Great Awakening uh, and how that shapes us. But I think there's a lot of value in what we're about to do, so that's why I'm doing it. At least I hope there is. I'm praying there is. To kind of take a bird's eye view, rush over it quickly, and, and get this synopsis understanding of revival and a biblical framework to understand what it is and how does it happen. The second disclaimer is that this is not a typical sermon for me and from me, so I just want to give you the right uh, level of anticipation here. I've, I've labored to be biblical and expositional, but know that this will feel different than other sermons, all right? You've been warned. Third disclaimer is that I'm likely going to challenge some of your thinking and assumptions about revival in the church. And I don't do that um, without caution, without care, without compassion, without love for you and love for the word. Uh, so I'm asking you, and maybe you won't feel challenged. Maybe that disclaimer will just, you won't even know what I was talking about by the end. But maybe it will, uh, and you'll be a little uh, frustrated or not knowing what I meant by something, and, and we can have that conversation later. But I want you to know I long to say what Scripture says on this issue and point to the Word, and so let's all do that. Let's all be Bereans together. So the question before us, what is revival and how does revival happen? It's an incredibly important question in this conversation within the church in particular because we need to define our terms. The, the term revival uh, is a term that can mean a lot of different things in the church. And, and frankly, this is how a lot of false teaching finds its way into the body of Christ, is to take a term that, that has clear and true meaning and, and to infuse it with different senses, different nuances, and different understandings. And that little leaven leavens the whole lump. So if we're going to talk about revival, we need to define our terms. That's what's under the question here of what is revival? What does it mean? What's the definition, biblically speaking? Uh, and that's a little bit tricky because the word, the noun, revival, is nowhere found in your Bible. Um, so you can't go to a text that says revival is and fill in the blank. You can't look it up in, in God's Merriam Dictionary and figure out this is what Merriam-Webster Dictionary, this is what revival is. That's not how it works. The closest we get in Scripture is the plea of the psalmist in Psalm 85, Psalm 119, a few others in which the psalmist cries out to the Lord, revive us again, O Lord. Revive my heart by bringing truth to bear upon it. It's a, a plea of a, of a steadfast love for the Lord that longs for God to do a new, fresh work in the heart of the psalmist. Really, other than that, there's not a text that says this is what revival is, nor is there a text that says this was revival. Here's an example of revival, and here it is. There's nothing like that in the scriptures that clearly. And so because there's not a clear definition, not a text we can go to like on regeneration where you can just clearly, boom, here it is, John 3 uh, or Titus 3. Uh, because there's not that for revival, it gets filled with a lot of meaning. And, and it becomes uh, the, the word that describes a lot of works and movements in the church at large uh, that kind of come back to the same basic category, but they mean different things. 
Now, I don't mean to say, and I hope you don't hear me saying, that revival is a made-up category of, of God's activity, that somehow we're infusing this into Scripture. I don't think that's true at all. I think there's several instances in both Old and New Testaments in which we see God do a, an amazing work, a, an a expression of his power that's astounding to us. And we see massive results of, of God renewing and reviving his people and, and bringing lost people to himself in, in new faith. And every time we see that happen in Old and New Testaments, you must know it's at a time when the people of God are in decline, obvious decline. Um, so think back to the Old Testament, particularly the, the season of the kings. This is a good chunk of your Bible. I know it's somewhat tedious reading as you read their stories and most of the kings were bad in their leadership over, well, all of them were bad in their leadership over Israel. Most of them were bad in their leadership of Judah, the two southernmost tribes. But there were a few kings, Hezekiah and Josiah in particular, who, who led reforms. They, they led a movement in which they stood on the truth of God and they sought to honor God and how they led the nation. And you see in, in this revival work of like Hezekiah and Josiah in particular, these men run back to the word of God. And as they do, God uses them and their commitment to the word to purge the land of idolatry. And there's a, a mass movement of, of cleansing and repentance and, and ultimately then joy and renewed worship in the people of God. And it, it stays, it, it, it holds off the wrath of God upon his people that is coming still because of their idolatry. But for a generation... Hezekiah and Josiah's generation, God is merciful and patient yet again and allows them to live through their generation before bringing his judgment and punishment upon them. In the New Testament, the examples of the extraordinary work of God all happen in the book of Acts. And they always happen, as we'll see, when God's people are in a rebellious rejection of the truth. So revival, as we saw the last two weeks, is, is needed when God's people have grown indifferent toward God. They've lost their fear of God and their love for God and their commitment to the truth of God. They lack pure and true worship of the one true God. They, they lack perseverance in obedience to God. Revival in the people of God is needed when truth is being adjusted and and played with like Plato to better fit in with the culture that's influencing the people of God around them. Revival is needed when the high moral standards of God's word are, are minimized, are brought lower so that we can better fit in with the current trendy immoralities seen around us. Revival is needed in the church when she shifts her confidence from the Lord and his strength and his work to what she can accomplish in her own strengths. And revival, as we saw at the end last week, is most certainly needed when the church loses its understanding of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be born again. The church is in need of revival when she loses Christ and the message of the good news of the gospel. And as you know, certainly the church in America is ripe for revival, for this unique work of God. Ripe because everything I just described to you is rampant in the American church. Particularly the, the self-deception and the self-profession that I know Christ when indeed so many who say that in the American church 
do not actually know the Jesus of the Bible. They've not actually been confronted with his grace and his forgiving power. They've not actually been brought to the end of their own sinfulness. They've not actually been brought to their need for a work outside of them to save them and rescue them from their sin. They, they know a Jesus, but they don't know the Jesus. And so many of churches gathering in America today gather almost as though it was a pep rally for Jesus, where self-professed Christians gather under the banner and the name of this Jesus they don't really actually know, trying to rev themselves up to serve and honor him like they should in the week to come. I think this is not a controversial statement. The church in America needs revived. And as I said to you last week, what does that mean? And how does that happen? I've had you turn to Acts 2, the single greatest day of revival in all church history in Acts 2. In Revelation 2 and 3, we see a condensed exposition on when the church needs revived. But we don't really know what happened after Jesus confronted them, do we? We, we know from church history a little bit of how they responded and, and how long a church stayed in that location, but we don't know much more. We don't know if they were revived, but we know they needed to be. In Acts 2, we have the most condensed example of God's supernatural work to do a massive conversion of 3,000 souls. Before we jump into the text of Acts 2, I think it's important to understand, and this may lose you. I hope it doesn't because it's super important. So as as best you can, engage and, and try to understand what I'm saying here about revival. There's essentially been three answers to the question of what is revival and how does it happen in recent church history. And by recent church history, I basically mean since the Protestant Reformation, so since the 1500s. There's been three basic answers to what is revival. The first answer is to say that revival happened on the day of Pentecost as the Spirit was sent by the Son, empowered the apostles for their ministry. That happened then, that that, uh, sent them throughout the book of Acts to take the gospel to the then known world and thousands were born again and the church was established and the view essentially says this happened once and does not need to happen again and won't happen again. God God poured out his spirit on that day and, and his spirit lives in the church and does a work but we shouldn't expect any extraordinary measure of the spirit's work in the church age. Now there's some true thoughts in that view that are good and biblical but there are some misunderstandings and and some thoughts that lead to conclusions that are not right. And really what it is, it's an overcorrection to abuses of revival that were seen in revivalism. Things that were being called revival that were not revival, and so this is an overcorrection. No, 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 revival happened once, day of Pentecost, don't expect anything else, just be faithful. And that kind of zaps the church of of any desire to see God use us in a tremendous way in culture in the present day. And it it takes away our our dependence on the Lord to use us however he would so choose and and our hope that maybe someday he would would speak through us to the world and do a massive work of converting hundreds or even thousands of souls. It's a minority view in the church. The second answer to the question, what is revival, how does it happen, is an answer hammered out on the anvil of experience through the ministry and the teaching of Charles Finney and, and others related to him. 
It's in the second half of the Second Great Awakening, so we're talking 1830s to the 1860s, 1870s. The view is known as revivalism. It's essentially a belief that says revival is always within the grasp of the church if she would but give herself to the appropriate means. At the core of those means, Finney taught, is a, a yieldedness to the Lord, which will ultimately compel the Lord to pour out his spirit on his church and bring about conversions and conviction. And so the state of revival in the church, according to this view, is the, the premier state of spiritual life. It's the, the highest attainment for the church to be in a, a season of revival. And if she's not in that state, then it's because there's something amiss in her. There's some idol she's worshiping. There's some sin unrepented of, and, and therefore she is less than ideal. There's no room in this view, by the way, for the, the normal and ordinary Christian life, the normal and ordinary work of God in the church, the, the, the life of steady growth and faithful service and earnest love day by day for the Lord. Finney and his disciples would look at that kind of Christian and say, this is a, a subpar Christianity. This is, this is the lukewarm category of the Laodicean church, which you already know. I don't think that's what that means. But anyways, that's what they would say. And that Christian needs to be revived to a higher spiritual experience. Finney says it this way. If God the Holy Spirit is not glorifying Jesus Christ in the world today, as at Pentecost, it is simply we who are to blame. You notice how he equates the ongoing state of the church to the high point of the church of the day of Pentecost. If we're not doing and experiencing that, we are to blame, he says. After all, he goes on, what is revival but simply the Holy Spirit fully controlling the surrendered life? It must always be possible then when man yields. The sin of unyieldedness alone can keep us from revival. Pentecost is yet within our grasp. If revival is being withheld from us, it is because some idol remains still enthroned, end quote. Finney also taught that this place of yieldedness was essentially a decision of your own will. The, the will of humans needed to be persuaded that this yielded posture before the Lord was best and that they just needed to, to consecrate themselves and give themselves over to Jesus as an act of their will. They needed to decide to follow Jesus. Related to that, he believed that the human will was, was not in bondage to sin against that person's own decision. So he defined bondage to sin as being something that we do by our own choice. We, we choose to be enslaved to our sin by not choosing to not be enslaved. That we can continue in depravity only by our own choice. He preached that a man could simply make the decision to, to have a new heart by making a decision for Christ. He believed that God commanded men to believe. At the crux of his belief is this, that if God commands men to believe, then God would be, would be some kind of beastly character if he didn't then think they were able to believe. Well, if that's all Scripture said about belief and the nature of man, I think we would have to agree with him. But that's not all Scripture says. But he believed that man has the ability to believe apart from any work of God. Now you contrast that to the theme of the preaching of 
a man who is used in the first great awakening, and that would be George Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards, but particularly George Whitfield. And the theme of his message was, you must be born again. From John 3, the words of Jesus to Nicodemus. In fact, he had a woman come to him one time after preaching, George Whitfield did, and said, sir, why do you keep telling us we must be born again? And he looked at her with this sober, serious look. He said, ma'am, because you must be born again. Whitfield knew it had to be a work of the Lord's grace upon a soul through the human instrument of the proclamation of the gospel, but God had to do a work. Whitfield knew that. However, Finney preached and and did a series of, of sermons in which he instructed people how to change their own heart, taking a, a phrase out of Ezekiel and, in my opinion, twisting it for his own ends. He had a superficial view of sin, a skin-deep view of sin, as it were, that it's just your choice. You're choosing to sin, and you can stop. Therefore, that led to a superficial view of the, of the solution to sin. That makes sense, right? If you truncate the problem, you're going to truncate the solution. If you put the problem in a can, then the solution to that is going to come in a can too. That's what Finney did. He truncated it. He, he had a superficial dumbed-down understanding of sin and therefore a dumbed-down understanding of what was needed to help sinners, to save them from their sins. He taught that sinners could regenerate themselves, make themselves new by simply making a decision for Christ. Now, how this played out in ministry, and this is where it gets important and leads to revival, so you've stuck with me, good job, you get a sticker afterwards. Where this plays into his ministry is that he taught that that men and women needed to be convinced and persuaded and to make a decision for Christ before leaving the meeting. Because if this is just an act of the will, then, then a good preacher, which he was an effective, effective communicator. He was a lawyer before he was a preacher. Be, be wary of those guys. He was a lawyer before he was a preacher. He knew how to persuade. He knew how to argue. And that's what he did in the pulpit. I'm kidding about the lawyer-preacher thing, but you know. And so he did in his meetings this kind of persuasion and calling people to decision in that moment before they left. In his meetings then, that, that view, that thought, that su- superficial view of sin and of the gospel led to all kinds of then emotional appeals, manipulating of circumstances, extended meetings, protracted music, ongoing appeals to get people to make a decision for Christ. He was the inventor of the anxious bench a bench up front reserved for those whose souls were in the anxiety of the decision for Christ. He and his meeting would call them forward to be on the bench, to consider the state of their soul, to decide for Jesus, to kneel in front of everybody, professing publicly that they were going to follow Christ. This method and practice of revival was wildly popular. He had amazing, outstanding results. There's estimates by historians that up to 500,000 people heard Finney and made a decision for the Lord throughout his ministry life. And his impact on the church today is, I think, quite obvious. And I think the revival at Asbury, from what I've understood it to be, I wasn't there, but what I've read and seen, was just another expression, just the latest expression of Finney's revivalism which fits because he was in the stream of of Methodists and the the people that formed and now run Asbury were 
it, their spiritual heritage is in the stream of Finney. Now, I grew up personally in a church culture that was immersed in this view of revivalism. And, and I don't mean that negatively to the church I grew up in. I praise God for all that God blessed me with in that body. I routinely am reminded of God's grace to me through those years in those, and through those people who faithfully ministered the gospel to me, who called me to holiness and sanctification in their flawed ways and often with their flawed understanding, as do I to you this morning. I praise God for them. This is not a critique of, of my spiritual forebears and heritage. But we were steeped in this kind of thinking about revivalism where, where we could put revival on the calendar knowing that from Sunday to Wednesday we were going to employ the right means, namely multiple services for an extended time with all kinds of good and helpful music and ferocious emotional appeals through preaching to get us to make decisions for the Lord. And this intention had the effect to produce the desired results. People were moved in those meetings to make public decisions for faith. This production of, of an expectation of revival was produced, but what I saw and have continued to see is that it doesn't last. Those decisions made in those moments are decisions in those moments. This creates then in a church culture from my experience and study and others' testimony, it creates an environment in which sinners made public decisions for Christ who had not truly been born from above by the power of the Spirit of God. And the assurance of salvation then that those sinners clung to was their public profession, what they did. So if you ask them, how do you know that you're going to heaven when you die, their answer would be, well, when I was, so in, when I was 10, when I was 12, when I was 16, I went forward and I professed my faith in Christ. This is a, a common testimony. As you evaluate this view of revival and how it happens, obviously we have to evaluate it according to Scripture, which we're, I'm going to do here in Acts 2. You're like, I know, get to the Bible already. We will. Give me a second. And you have to ask, is this how God told us he would work to revive the church and to save lost souls? That's a question, right? If we're going to evaluate that view of revival, we should ask, is that what God told us to expect? Is that the pattern he laid out? Is that how he told us to go about it? More than that, we have to ask, is that view of revival in line with what God has said about the nature of the human sin problem? And is that view in line with the, the power and the nature of the gospel proclaimed in the Bible? And the power of the Spirit proclaimed in the Bible? Not only that, we also have to evaluate the results according to Scripture. So how this re revival uh, view produces, what it produces, is that in line with Scripture? So, so what does it actually look like when it's all said and done? And is that what the Word of God says will be produced by revival? You understand, I hope, the basic paradigms of the question. Well, in the ministry of Charles Finney, just to cut to the chase and tell you the end... There was an initial excitement with astounding and immediate results. In fact, that's why he became a speaker on revival, because he had such amazing results. And Americans, apparently from our beginning, have been prone to pragmatism. If it works, it must be good. It must be right. 
to teach us how to do that so we have the same results. And so he became a guru on revival because he had hundreds of thousands of people coming to make a decision for the Lord. But over the span of his lifetime, as, as time carried on, truth was seen. And that's how it always works. Time and truth always go hand in hand. A teaching will prove itself true or false over the carrying through of time. And this revival view over the span of the lifetime of Finney did not add converts to the churches of New England. Many fell away. He even himself, near the end of his life, expressed regret at the many who no longer had stuck in the faith. This was so much the case that by the end of Finney's ministry, he he ministered primarily in the New England area. That area, that geographical region became known as the Burnt Over District. They called it that because there was a flash in the pan of spiritual revival that had burnt over the hearts of people in that region. In fact, to this day, some of the hardest ground, spiritual ground in all of America is found in the Northeast. It's one of the hardest places to plant a church and to see God do a work of reviving and converting lost sinners. There's a lot of factors for that, I believe, but certainly a good chunk of it is the history of this unbiblical view and practice of revival under the ministry of Finney and his disciples. My own heart, my own, my own life exposure to this view of revivalism, just to talk about the result for another second, what that produced in me was a, a confusion about the nature of saving faith about the nature of true assurance of salvation. How did I know that I was in Christ and not in my flesh anymore? I was confused about that. It produced confusion about the the nature of being sanctified. How am I sanctified? What does this look like and, and how does it happen in my life? And again, that's not a bashing of those who poured into me for years on end. It's just a, we need to learn from the past and grow ourselves and not repeat those errors. In large part, it's this view of the human condition, the work of God, the the nature of revival, the hope of what revival will produce that I saw evident at Asbury. It fits well within this second answer. The third answer is the one I want to try to prove to you from Scripture this morning, and we will get there in Acts 2. It's the, the one I believe is proven over and over again, not just in Acts, but also throughout church history. It's the answer that's rooted in a biblical understanding of the Spirit of God, why he came and what he does in the world and in the church. I'm going to quote Ian Murray because he says it better than I do. It's in his book, Pentecost Today. That has a question mark. He's answering that question, can we have Pentecost today? He says this, Revival is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit brought about by the intercession of Christ, resulting in a new degree of life in the churches and a widespread movement of grace among the unconverted. It is an extraordinary communication of the Spirit of God, a superabundance of the Spirit's operations, an enlargement of His manifest power. In other words, God's work through His Spirit in revival is an extraordinary measure of what the Spirit already is doing namely to build the church and convert the lost. And the the Spirit's always at work to do that, to to bring the church to fuller maturity and to convict the world of of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. But he's the blowing wind of John 3, right? When Jesus describes this 
supernatural work. He describes the Spirit's work as the wind blowing wherever it wishes, and you don't know when it will blow or how hard it will blow. There's an element in the Spirit's work of, of measures of His work, and there's times when He works in an extraordinary measure with extraordinary results. And the effects of that are obvious on the pages of Scripture. Jesus, when He was talking to the disciples in John 16, you remember this? This is what kind of compelled us into the series on revival. He said, I'm about to leave, but I'm going to send my spirit to you. Remember what he said about that? The spirit's going to come, and he's going to remind you of all truth, of all that I've said to you, and he's going to guide you into all truth. And then he said, he's going to come to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, the epistles go on to tell us a bunch of other things the spirit of God does in the church. His, his ministry is expounded and explained further in the epistles. But they all come back to the acorn, the, the nugget of truth in John 16. And they, they blossom out of what Jesus clearly said, this is his work. To remind and teach and guide the church into all truth and to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So we should expect then when we turn from the record of the gospel of Jesus' life in John to the historical record of the church's beginning in the book of Acts, we should expect to see the Spirit doing this, Right? You tracking with me? Jesus promised it. When the Spirit comes, is that what he does? That's why we're in Acts 2. So in Acts 1, Jesus appears to the disciples and says to them, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit of God to come upon you. Now, back in John 20, verse 22, this is the day of the Lord's resurrection. It's later on that Sunday after he appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He comes back to the upper room. He appears to all of them, and he breathes on them. You remember this, John 20, 21? He breathes on them, and he says, receive the Spirit of God. So in some way, the disciples, before Acts 1, had the Spirit of God. Correct? From John 20. But he says now in Acts 1, there's a, a new measure there's a work coming that is beyond what you already know. And he says to them, he'll come upon you and he'll baptize you, Acts 1, verse 4. He'll depart from me. Excuse me, I'm reading the wrong verse. Verse 5, John baptized with the water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so they go to the upper room, they wait for the Spirit of God, and they pray. We come then to Acts 2, verse 1. The text says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Galatia, or excuse me, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, then visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? 
But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. You could say that the men in verse 12 are asking similar questions to what we're asking this morning. What is going on? What does this mean? I know Acts 2 is super familiar to you, but look at it through the eyes of a concern to see how the Spirit works on this very unique day, this day of revival. Notice in verses 1 through 13 that the Spirit comes upon them as promised by Jesus. He baptizes them in his fullness. In other words, he fills them. And what's the result of that filling work of the Spirit? What's the result of that increased measure of the Spirit upon these men? Well, they're uniquely equipped to go forth and speak in languages they do not know because they're Galileans but to speak of the mighty works of God in the mother tongue of all the various people who are gathered there for the feast. And what are they namely proclaiming of the mighty works of God? Well, namely, they're telling about salvation through the name of Jesus. How do we know that? Because that's what Peter then goes on to say again. He's rehearsing the message for them one more time as he goes on to preach. So how does the Spirit work? When the Spirit fills his church, what does he do? He compels them to powerfully proclaim the good news of Jesus. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give, ears to my, give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. We know the extraordinary results in the next verse. About 3,000 souls come to saving faith. But before we get there, what did the Spirit of God filling the apostle of Christ lead him to say in this event? Well, notice quickly that in verses 14 to 21, he explains what's going on. He helps them understand what's happening. He says, listen, what's happening is not these guys are drunk. It's only nine in the morning. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is a unique work of God, much like what Joel the prophet prophesied. And it's clear to you that this is the last day. In other words, it's time to get serious about your soul. God has broken into our existence and he has come down with flames as tongues of fire and he is speaking through these men to you in your own tongue. And anyone who will call on the name of the Lord can be saved. That's what Peter says. He explains the event. He lets them know this is your point in history. God's breaking in. And then he goes on to talk about the truth about Jesus. Verses 22 to 36. And they all knew who Jesus was. They all heard him speak and teach. They had all probably had family members who had been healed or known someone who was healed by Jesus. They maybe were part of the crowd that cried out, crucify him, crucify him. They know Jesus. And he says, listen, Jesus attested to you by mighty works and powerful sermons and wonders and signs that he was the Messiah. But you, you, oh Jews, you crucified him. You rebellious, unrepentant men hung him on a Roman cross according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was not a mistake, but you, O oh men, are guilty before God. And you must know, men, this Jesus is not dead. You must know, men, that though you killed him, this is not over. How do I know that? Because David talked about his flesh not seeing corruption. You guys can go look in David's grave and see his bone ossuary and see that it is still there. His dust remains. But man, we are here to tell you, empowered by the Spirit of God, who you just saw come upon us, that we have seen a risen Jesus. He is no longer in his grave. He is the fulfillment of Psalm 16 and the prophecy of his Father David, he is David's greater son, and he is risen from the grave. And I am telling you, men, he is returning. He is risen, resurrected, and exalted. And in his absence, he sent his spirit to call you to believe. Because he is both Lord and Christ. He's the promised one to you, and he is Lord over you. At that point in the sermon, every person in that audience is wondering, what am I to do about Jesus? If Peter is right about Jesus, I am in a world of hurt. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and, Peter, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What happened when the Spirit filled the apostles of Christ in a unique and increased measure kind of way? Well, the hearers were cut to the heart and asked, what should we do? This is the obvious fulfillment of John 16 where Jesus said the Spirit is going to come to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. They said Jesus was a sinner. He was a blasphemer. He was a liar. He deserved to die on a cross. Now Peter says, no, you are the sinners. You are the blasphemers. You are the liars. And they were cut to the heart and they believed because the Spirit of God was at work to bring them to conviction and belief. And what is the astounding result? Well, about 3,000 publicly identify themselves with the crucified and resurrected Jesus through baptism, essentially cutting off all ties to their livelihoods as Jews associating themselves with a man who'd just been killed by Jewish leaders for blasphemy. We know from John 3 that this is a work of the Spirit to bring new life to this crowd they in this moment are born from above. And that is made known by their willingness to turn from previous belief about Jesus and to be fully identified with him through believer's baptism. What's the result of all that? Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And I know some of you are looking at the clock and like, we're gonna land this plane quickly, all right? It's gonna be a little rocky. You're gonna bounce up and down a few times on the runway, but we're gonna get it down, so hang on. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number Day by day, those who were being saved. What was the result of this extraordinary work of the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost? Nobody looks at Acts 2 and says, that's not revival. We all look at Acts 2 and say, man, that was an amazing work of God. Whatever you mean by revival, whatever you hope for, we hope it's something like that, right? What's the result of that? What came out of that? Did they on day two rent out the biggest meeting hall in Jerusalem and go for day of Pentecost 2.0? Peter, preach again. Do this again. Holy Spirit of God, come down upon us again in this extraordinary way and bring the flames of the tongues of fire again. That was really neat. And that drew, drew a crowd. Lord, do that again. And in doing that, then do this amazing work again and bring in 3,000 more. I don't know about you, but I, I get to Acts 42, and I'm like, this is prime real estate in Christian experience, right? If you could teleport yourself back in human history anywhere to be a part of, of an awesome moment in church life where there's purity and, and innocence and pursuit of truth and love for the Lord, it's right here. Like, what an amazing work of God. 
And this is produced by the extraordinary work of the Spirit. The extraordinary work of the Spirit produced the very ordinary, and it's not ordinary, but it's normal, effect of church life. What's described in Acts 2, 42 to 47, is what every church of every age desires to have true of them. A devotion to the Word, a devotion to prayer, a commitment to fellowshipping together in the truth, a a sacrificial giving of, of myself to the blessing of others. A selflessness permeating the body that doesn't care if, if I have it or you have it as long as we're all, all our needs are met for the glory of God. A, a desire to see others reached, a, a mission mindset. That's the church, right? The extraordinary work of God by His Spirit in Acts 2, 1 to 41 produces the very ordinary common reality of the church in verses 42 to 47. Now, we could skip lunch and walk all the way through Acts and see many, well, I'm not going to, but we could see many other times which these same preachers stood before a crowd empowered by the Spirit and preached and did not have the same results. We could go to Acts 17, Paul in Athens. Acts 16, Paul in Philippi. Acts 22 to 24, Paul in Jerusalem, this very ground. And the result is different. And what's the problem? Were these men not as devoted, not as committed, not as yielded to the Spirit? Of course not. It's a work of the Spirit of God by His own sovereign wisdom. For a unique time, to a unique measure, for His unique glory. And this has been the testimony of Revival Star Church history, their unexpected works of the Spirit of God breaking into the life and ministry of the church to accomplish God's own sovereign purposes. The Reformation fires of the 1500s were lit by God through John Huss and John Wycliffe in the 1300s. The Spirit of God moved those men to uphold Scripture and to give and recover the true gospel. And then God, through men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and others, lit a massive and extraordinary work by his spirit on the whole continent of Europe, turned the world upside down with the gospel. Why? Because they had the right methods? No, because they recovered the right message and were uniquely used by God's spirit for such a time as that. The same is true in the First Great Awakening here in America under Edwards and Whitfield. Edwards called what he saw in Northampton the surprising works of God. It's said of the Great Awakening that it broke upon slumbering churches like a thunderbolt rushing out of a clear blue sky. That's how they described it. It wasn't something they were sitting around for days on end hoping would happen. They hoped that it would happen but it was an unexpected measure of the powerful working of God upon the church. You know, Whitfield came to the American colonies seven times. It was only on one of his trips that he saw this amazing outpouring of this measure of the work of the Spirit. He came five more times after the first great awakening, and he never saw the same results, never saw the same reaction. This is evidence of the sovereign work of the Spirit of God. It's mysterious And it's glorious. We don't know all of why. We don't even frankly know all of how. 
But we know who. Revival is not a tool in the hands of earnest men. Revival is a work in the hands of a sovereign God. Doing as he so chooses, when he so chooses, for his own glory. It's kind of like a growth spurt in a human body. Your kids or you in this moment have this experience where you wake up one morning and things that fit yesterday don't fit today. Normally you grow imperceptibly. You don't even realize you're growing. Your uncle who never sees you sees you one day three years later and is like, oh my word, you've gotten so big. And you're like, I didn't even realize it. I've just been me the whole time. But there's seasons in your growth where there's a growth spurt and you had nothing to do with it. All of a sudden you're just hungrier and and longing for more food, and all of a sudden you're two inches taller. It's similar to that in the spiritual realm, the Spirit of God moving in revival. So what is revival? How does it happen? Let's wrap this up, land the plane, and go eat lunch. Well, revival is an extraordinary measure of God's Spirit working to bring new life to the church and to bring many lost souls to saving faith in Christ. This happens by God's prescribed means. We cannot manufacture nor schedule when God must do this. We're not in charge nor can we call down some fresh outpouring of the Spirit of God, nor can we create some portal to heaven in a certain place like the evangelical world treated Asbury, as though it was only there that a portal from heaven opened up and you had to go there to receive the anointing of the Spirit. That's not how God works. That is not how God works. It's not how he said he would work. It's not how he has worked. It is in his hands, his instruments, his glory so I ask you as we end should we seek revival should we seek to be instruments that he could use to bring about his extraordinary work and I'll try to answer those next week as we gather together may God help us understand and glorify his name would you pray with me Father in heaven thank you for your word help us to more and more look like the church in Acts 2 42 to 47 evidence of your spirit's work in and through us. Would you, for your glory, accomplish that? Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.